Welcome. Good morning. Summer is upon us, even though it might not feel quite like it today. Actually, I guess technically summer was upon us last week. But with our barbecue today, we are officially welcoming summer here as a church. So at least at Auburn Bible Chapel, today is summer day one. And, uh, and for me, I definitely am feeling that since tomorrow, I'm driving up the kids camp team to Miss Disney so they can be there for the full month of July, which really is the start of the summer season for me in terms of ministry. And, uh, and I wanted to update everybody and let you know that the fundraiser, the Imagine Dessert Theater that we did, uh, we just did the tally up on Friday, Judy and I, and brought in over $1,600. So thank you very much. For those who weren't there, that's over 400 more than, uh, than what we were aiming for. So that was a real blessing, and, and uh, thank you for all of you who were present and helped make uh, the camp season this year a reality. Along with the summer, we are now starting our summer series, if you call it that. It's not really so much a series as a number of individual people getting up and sharing what they feel God is placing on their heart, knowing that a lot of people are coming and going over the summer. Uh, Brent and I and the other speakers talked about it and felt that was the best way to go. And, uh, and I have the honor of being able to start that off this week with a discussion about wisdom and faith. If you're in the church long enough, you will inevitably hear people talk about faith. And by this, I don't just mean faith as in believing in God in general, but things like taking a leap of faith or living by faith or having the faith to trust that God will provide for you. This is a phrase that comes up in the church, but when you listen closely, some of the things that people who use these terms may seem to be talking about can seem awfully unusual or, or let's be frank, maybe even flat out unwise. How wisdom and faith fit together is not readily apparent, sometimes even for Christians who are experienced in the faith and have had a lot of years to try and figure that out. The reason I wanted to talk about this today is partly because of a young woman from Trent that I was talking to about a week ago. She was wrestling with just this question. How do I know whether I'm supposed to do something that on the surface looks like it could be dangerous or even a little bit unwise? She came to Nemska last year with us and had her first taste of working with Native people. And this year, she was asked to come be part of an organization called Frontier College. They send students to northern remote communities to teach people for the entire summer. They're educational camps. And she, who's training for teaching, ultimately, was excited about this possibility. And especially as somebody who has a heart for Native people, this was an exciting prospect. But as this young woman explored what this would entail, there were some awfully scary-sounding things that this entailed for her. The first was simply the isolation. She's going to a pretty remote place, remote enough to the point that she doesn't have cell access, and it's a fly-in-only community. It's actually an island in the middle of a lake. So she's not going to have contact with her friends, her family, her church. She's not going to have a chance to have other people supporting her. And the truth is, the people who are going with her are chosen not because of any faith component. This is not a Christian organization. They're chosen because of the fact that they are aspiring teachers or people who want to help out with the justice cause. Her teammates are not Christians. And so she realized, I'm really going to be standing on my own in my faith. 
But the thing that really started to beg a question in her mind of whether she was supposed to go or not actually came about when she joined us on our building trip about a month ago. And there she got talking to one of our leaders who shared with her a little bit of the ugly things that he had seen when it came to native spirituality. He said there's some of the traditions that are awfully nice, but he had seen people who were obviously demonically possessed, or he knew people who had been harming themselves physically as part of native rituals. And he had, he had encountered some pretty heavy spiritual warfare in his own life as a result of some of the things that were going on in those different communities. And he even shared with her one story of a native community where the media had found out that they had kicked out all of the native spiritualists, the, the shamans and the like, from their community. And the media assumed, well, this must be Christians coming in and imposing their will on this community or something. And in the story, the people from the community said, no, no, we wanted them out because we've seen awful things. We've seen things where people have died from the power of these shamans due to curses placed on them and stuff like that. Well, Raquel, the young woman who, who's going north, began to get a little bit worried. Standing on my own two feet, okay, I can see that for six weeks. But what if I were to face some of this type of stuff? What if I were to face some, some real spiritual warfare? What if I were to encounter people who are into some of these things? I, I really don't know how I'd respond to that. And as we talked, two stories came out. Two scriptural stories. And I, I think the two stories actually really help illustrate the relationship between wisdom and faith. The first one is the story of Nehemiah. And that's where we're going to start. We're going to go to Nehemiah 6. And in that story, we, we have an example of wisdom. And the second story, the one that came to mind as we were talking about it, is the story of Paul in Acts 20. We're going to go there afterwards. And as you'll see, the two stories are actually very similar, but the two men make very different choices in terms of how they respond to their situations. I'm going to hold out on what it is that I told Raquel she should do until after we've read the two stories. But I hope that they're helpful in sorting through what it is that wisdom and faith look like together. Let's pray before we dive into God's word. Heavenly Father, thank you for gathering us here today on a rainy day where our energies are a little bit low. Father, we know that your spirit is still here among us and that we can be encouraged and challenged by your word today. I pray as we look at these two men of God, Nehemiah and Paul, that we would be inspired and that we would come away with a better understanding of how we too are supposed to walk in faith and wisdom as your children. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. I don't know how many people would count Nehemiah as one of their favorite biblical figures. His story is not as exciting as many of the other Old Testament stories that we like to quote, like Daniel's story or like Abraham's story. I think part of that is because Nehemiah really is a wise man. And throughout the book, it's very clear that a lot of potential crises are averted because of his wisdom. Let me stop for just a second and define wisdom. I think wisdom is the ability to see and live by life's patterns as designed by God. 
Wisdom is the ability to recognize how life works and to live in accordance with that. God, our creator, has designed this world to function certain ways. And wisdom is to know, here's what a good life looks like, here's what a bad life looks like. Wisdom is not really ethics. It's not necessarily a matter of black and white, right and wrong. But it is a question of what is going to ultimately lead to a better story. What would lead me down a worse path, maybe to a place where I would have to compromise morally. And Nehemiah, I believe, is one of the wisest figures in the Bible. Nehemiah's story starts in exile. He's an advisor to one of the Persian kings after Israel has been in exile for a number of centuries. And he has an opportunity. He's close to the king, and he has the chance to ask him whether he can go back and help rebuild the temple and the walls around Jerusalem. This is something that God has placed on his heart as a heavy burden. He's sad to see the nation of Israel still crumbled after they got kicked out by Babylon and then Persia. And, and Nehemiah gets favor in the sight of the king. We're told God gave him an opportunity. And so he travels back, gathers some materials on the way, and arrives in Israel to a pretty depressing scene. The first thing that he finds is that the people of Israel at the time were quite scattered. Many of them had given up hope that their homeland could be rebuilt. Many of them felt oppressed by their neighbors. And so Nehemiah wisely talks to different individuals, gets some of the influential people in the community to start helping him out, and, and we quickly see a scene emerging where the, the community as a whole is working together because for the first time in a long while they have a sense of purpose. And they're working each piece by piece along the wall so that it can come together as a whole, which is a really beautiful image of how God uses us together. The second challenge that he faces after finding them all scattered and having to rally them is that the enemy nations are not very pleased with this scenario. And so they begin to talk about coming and invading and hurting the people who are doing the work. And so Nehemiah has this wonderfully, I don't know, romantic, but probably not romantic scene, but it's, it's kind of, it captures your imagination, where he actually instructs everybody who's doing the work to start working with their sword close at hand. It says that people who are working on the wall have it strapped right at their hip so that if there was somebody to come, they can fight. And people who are actually carrying heavy labor or the burdens on their back, he actually, it actually talks about them walking with the sword in their hand just in case somebody invades. And because of this, the enemy nations realize we're not just going to have easy pickings here. These people are ready to fight for their right to rebuild this wall. Then after that, Nehemiah finds out that they're running out of money to finish rebuilding the wall. It's an economic crisis of sorts. And as he digs deeper, he finds out the reason for this is because many of the Jewish leaders have been charging interest to their own fellow Jews who they have lent out money to, which is actually forbidden in the Old Testament. And so first he calls them out. He says, you guys aren't doing what you're supposed to. You're bad leaders for having done this. You're going against God's law. Give people their due and, and look after your brothers and sisters. Do not make a profit off of them. 
And then Nehemiah actually sets an example of this. He's been given the rights as a governor for the region, and he deliberately chooses to forego taxes that would benefit him as the governor, as an example to the leaders of what it looks like to look after one's own. So here we see he overcomes three challenges. First, the scattered people, then the potential invasion by enemy forces, and then the economic crisis. He manages to overcome one by one so that the wall is approaching completion. Then as we come to Nehemiah 6, we see that his enemies are beginning to get a little bit worried about this. It says, When Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem the Arab and the rest of our enemies heard that I had built the wall and that there was no breach left in it, although at the time I had not set up the doors and the gates, they sent to me, saying, Come and let us meet together at Hekephorim in the plain of Ono. Then he's discerning here. He's received this invitation from people who have threatened invasion in the past. And he discerns they intended to do me harm at that point in time. Here there are people who are worried about Israel regaining its status as a power in the region. Many of the crises that could have interrupted this wall so far have failed. The wall's really close to completion at this point in time. I have a sense that they're up to no good in inviting me to come down. As the passage continues, we see that they go on to accuse him of, of, of uh, working for power. They say, we actually think that the reason you're here is because of the fact that you're trying to make yourself the king. It's kind of like they're baiting him. Like, come, come prove to us. Come show us that you're not here for your own benefit. But he says to me, go away. You're making all of this up in your mind. Then, right after that, he has a, an aspiring prophet come to him. And the prophet says to him, hey, these guys really have it in for you. Maybe you should go hide in the temple. Maybe you should lock yourself away, and that way they can't get at you. And this time, he says just the opposite. He says, no, I'm not willing to lock myself away. I'm not willing to hide. I know that would discredit me in the eyes of the people. And I know that it's not really right for me to live in the temple as if it were my home. I'm going to stay out here, and I'm going to finish the task that God has for me. And because of that, because of Nehemiah's discernment in both of these situations, first in being invited to come down and see his enemies, and then in having a prophet, or not so prophet, as we'll see, tell him that he should give up and run away, we read in verse 15, the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month of Elul in 52 days. Nehemiah accomplished what he set out to do. The wall was complete. Jerusalem was again a defended city, which means that it was finally able to start recovering from the crisis that it had faced. Nehemiah is a wise man. It would have been very easy for him to give in to either of those temptations, to go down or to run and hide, and then the wall would never have been completed. There's nothing supernatural here. 
nothing that shocks us or awes us. But we can see how his wisdom is what kept him on path and allowed him to complete the task. The question I think is, first and foremost, how do I develop this? How do I develop wisdom? I think we can all recognize that this is a good thing to have. I think we learn from this passage three different things that help us in cultivating wisdom. The first is that, quite frankly, Nehemiah is observant. He's attentive to life's patterns. Again, wisdom is the ability to recognize the patterns of life that God has set in place. When he recognizes they intended to do me harm, he's, he's knowing these are men of bad character. They have proven to be an enemy in the past. Why would I start trusting them now? Similarly, when they start accusing him of trying to do things for his own power, his response, it's almost comical. He says, you've made all these things up. You're inventing them out of your own mind, in verse 8, he says. He's discerning that these guys are going to stoop even to the point of slandering him on an imaginary level in order to discredit him. He's looked, he's thought, he's observed, and he's recognized. There's a pattern here. These guys are up to no good, so why would I trust them? Alongside that, when it comes to the encounter with the prophet, I think he shows discernment in who to trust. He actually says in verse 12, after having heard him out and responded and said, no, I don't think I'm supposed to go into hiding, he realizes that God hadn't really sent this man. That in fact he was in the employ of his enemies. We don't know how he came to that realization, but the truth is that he knew this person is not good to listen to. Over and against some of the other figures throughout the book of Nehemiah that he does listen to. Alongside learning to observe, to see life's patterns, to slow down and to think carefully about how life works, it's really important that we know who to trust if you want to cultivate wisdom. There really is no replacement for a good mentor or a good friend, somebody who can come alongside you and say, look, don't you see? This is the way that things work. And similarly, knowing who will mislead you, the friends who cause you to stumble, the ones who don't lead you down the right path consistently, is really important in terms of cultivating wisdom. In the Proverbs, it actually says, if you surround yourself with wise people, you yourself will become wise. If you surround yourself with fools, you will become foolish. It's a good life principle. Last, I think one of the things that Nehemiah models that is essential to developing wisdom is that he's a man of prayer. Actually, if you read through the book of Nehemiah, this is one of the things that I think stands out right away. He's writing from his own perspective, and every section of the book, he stops to issue prayers to God, even in the midst of his writing. In verse 14, he actually says, Remember Tobiah and Senbalat, O my God, according to these things that they did, and also to the prophetess Nodiah and the rest of the prophets who wanted to make me afraid. This is a man who's so prayerful, that it even comes out in the way that he writes. Because God is the one who designed the patterns of the world, I really don't think you can be fully wise unless you're willing to spend time in prayer with him, asking him to lead you, and asking him to, to pave the way for whatever it is that you're doing. 
Again, Nehemiah having exemplified these three things, having developed wisdom and implemented it, ends up accomplishing what he set out to do. Going back to our original story, Raquel, and her question of whether she should go up north. The reason why this story had stood out to her is because she heard it preached on at a women's conference. And the question that had stood out to her was, should I avoid going down into this valley? There are some good signs that this could be a bad thing for me to be doing. Maybe this is too risky a situation. I've heard from people who have experience. They say there is a clear pattern that there is spiritual warfare in communities like this. I know my own self and recognize that I'm still learning how to stand on my own two feet, and that might not be a good situation to enter into. But the thing that stopped her from flat out saying no is that as she prayed about it, she felt something different stirring in her heart. She said, Ben, no matter how much I worry that it might not be wise, I feel like I'm supposed to go still. And that brings us to the topic of faith. If you will, turn to Acts 20 with me. If wisdom is the recognition of life's patterns, the ability to see how life works and to live in accordance with that, I would define faith as the ability to trust God and act in accordance with his will even when life's normal patterns don't seem to apply. That's faith. Faith is the ability to trust God even when things don't line up in your favor. Paul, the apostle, is a great example of this. You know many of Paul's exploits. The apostles to the Gentiles. The man who stood in the Areopagus debating with some of the great leaders of the time helping to show that Jesus is God. The man who did three missionary journeys, planting churches all across Asia, the Roman province. What you might not know is that he faced a situation very similar to the one that Nehemiah was in. By the time we get to Acts 20, he's winding down his missionary career. Paul has concluded that he has really done everything that he needs to in the province of Asia, that he's planted the churches, that he's given each city a basic understanding of the gospel. There's now a nascent church everywhere that he goes. And he begins to head to Jerusalem. He's decided that he really wants to go to Rome, but at first he needs to stop in at Jerusalem and see the church there and pay his dues for all of the support that they've shown him. What's interesting is that as he's going along this journey, he separates from the people that he's been traveling with up for, uh, for a little while. He sends them off on a boat, and he goes around by land, and they say that they're going to meet him partway along his journey. And by the time we get to that place, Miletus, in verse 17 of Acts 20, something has happened. Paul reveals that he's had insight from the Holy Spirit. He calls together the elders from Ephesus. Ephesus is one of the churches that he had planted and was one of the the thriving churches at the time. 
<clears throat> he had actually decided he couldn't go right to Ephesus to see them. But because he was passing close enough, he invited them to come to Miletus and say, let's, let's, let's have a final conversation before I go off to Jerusalem and then to Rome. And so it says, from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to the Greeks of repentance towards God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ." And then he drops a bit of a bomb on them, and I think probably on the team that he was traveling with. I think the reason why Luke, the author of Acts, records this right here is because he wasn't expecting it. They had been separated for a little while. And he says, And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that I go to, that imprisonment and afflictions await me. This is pretty similar to Nehemiah, right? Come on down to the valley. No, I realize what awaits me down there. Go to Jerusalem. Okay, I know what awaits me there. This is the amazing thing, is that he's saying something very similar. I recognize that harm is going to be done to me if I go down to this place. The Holy Spirit is making it clear to me. But he says, I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Paul makes the exact opposite conclusion to Nehemiah. Nehemiah says, no, if I go down to this valley, they're going to do harm to me, and I'm not going to be able to finish the mission that I'm on. Paul says, I'm going to go down to Jerusalem and I'm going to be harmed and I'm going to finish the mission that I'm on by doing it. Paul is a man of great faith. He's willing to go into a situation that clearly has harm spelled out for him and yet to do so confident that God will fulfill what he's intending in that situation. So then the question is, how do we know? How do we know when we're being called to do something that maybe even seems unwise, like going to a place where we know we're going to be imprisoned and beaten. It's certainly not evident to everybody. As he talks to the people along the journey on the way to Jerusalem, he has a lot of opposition. In fact, in one of the cities he goes to, the, the prophets there actually get together, and they have a portrait. They have one man bound and beaten, and they say, this is how you're going to be bound and beaten. The Holy Spirit is telling you, this is what's going to happen to you there. Why are you going? And Paul says to them, please stop. Please don't keep on asking me to stay back with you, because I know what God has set out before me. How do you know when people around you are pointing out, this is unwise? How do you know when all of life's patterns point to the fact that this is not a safe situation, that I'm supposed to go anyways? Again, I think when we look at what Paul says here, we can take out three principles, three things that help us to understand it. The first is he talks about an unexpectedly strong urge. 
He says, I'm going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit in verse 22. The first sign that God is calling you to something is that you've had your heart engaged by it. That's how the Holy Spirit works. And not only constrained by it, not only are you feeling strongly about it, but in my experience, one of the things that goes on when the Holy Spirit calls you to something is a deep sense of peace, even though you know the situation is going to be hard. And I think that's kind of what Paul means when he talks about being constrained by the Spirit. It's like, I, I just know this is right. I just know there's no other option for me, that this is the path I'm supposed to walk, even though I know what lies on the other side. The second thing that comes about here that I think is, is really important to discerning whether God is telling you to take a step of faith is a recognition that there is a real sense of purpose here. God doesn't call us to jump off a bridge just because we should. In fact, Jesus shows that in his own temptation by Satan, right? Standing at the top of the temple, Satan says, just jump down and angels will catch you. That'll prove that you're the Son of God. And Jesus said, man, don't test the Lord your God. It is not faith to test God, to do things that are unwise just because we want to see what his response will be. But Paul's not doing that. He has a real sense of purpose in this. He says clearly, I do not account my life of any value if it means I get to finish my mission. He knows that Jerusalem and Rome are the places of destination, that that's the place that he needs to preach the gospel next. And so he says, there's a purpose here. Even if it's a costly purpose, there's a purpose here, and I'm going to fulfill it. I think that's probably the biggest thing that separates Paul and Nehemiah in these two stories. Nehemiah recognizes my purpose is here. Paul says my purpose is there. Discerning that is really important. God might call you to do all sorts of different things, some big, some small. But you should have a sense that there is something that is being led to with this. This is not just a random occurrence. Maybe God will call you to give something away or to give it to somebody else. Paul himself admits he doesn't know the full purpose, and you might not know the full purpose of what it is that's going to happen in that moment. But you might realize, I think God is saying, this person really needs the last of my money. This person really needs me to provide for this need. He might call you to up and move careers or move to a different city. I've been there. I've done that, for those of you who know my story. Again, it's not necessarily going to be fully evident. Here's, here's what God is going to do on the other side of it. Paul says, I don't know what awaits me there except for I know that there's going to be suffering and that I'm going to get to complete my mission. But God may be stirring up in you a new sense of calling. Here's what my mission is supposed to be. Here's how he wants me to serve him next. There's a sense of purpose. It may be something very simple. Sometimes we think of faith as something like really big, but it could be something as simple as getting baptized. Here I'm going to stop and plug that on Saturday we're going to have a baptism class for anybody who would like to consider getting baptized or just learn more about it. 
I think we've got a few in the congregation who are in that position. So, Saturday from 3 to 5 p.m., you can come to the church. We're going to have a class on baptism, so you can learn more about that. Getting baptized can be a scary commitment. It can seem awfully unwise to hand your whole life over publicly to this Jesus Christ. And it may be that simple that he's telling you, this is my purpose for your life, to serve me. Would you follow me in it? When God calls, there's a sense of purpose. And the last one is the willingness to bear the cost. First of all, you have to know what I have coming due is something I can pay. And second of all, you need to know that you're willing to bear that cost if it will really lead to the purpose of serving God. Paul says, the Holy Spirit testifies to me that in every, in every city, he testifies to me that imprisonment and afflictions await me. He has no doubt about the cost. This is actually why wisdom is so important. It is not faith to simply make bad decisions and trust God to get you through it. You have to first recognize this is an unusual decision to make, that there is going to be a cost. If you don't recognize that, it's not faith. By definition, you're not trusting God to provide for you in a supernatural way if you don't know there's anything unusual or supernatural about it. I know that may seem self-evident, but I, I really want to drive home the point that, that there is no such thing as faith without wisdom. First, learn to discern what life's patterns are. Learn to read the situation. Learn to be like Nehemiah and recognize there is something costly about this situation. And then you can pray and discern whether or not God is calling you to bear that cost for the sake of his mission. So we see in Paul an unexpectedly strong urge, a real sense that this is connected to God's purpose in his life, and a willingness to bear the cost if he can be part of that, if he can see God's mission driven forward. If you feel those things, take the step of faith. Take the step of faith. Even if you feel like people around you won't necessarily understand it or support it. Be careful, though. Don't think that your calling is necessarily everyone else's calling. One of the things I love about this story is that Paul, after having said all of this, immediately turns to the elders of Ephesus and he says, guard your flock. Since I'm leaving, there's going to be great danger for those who are left. You stay while I go so that they can be well taken care of. He says, we must help the weak and your role in that is to be here doing that. We need to be careful of thinking just because God calls one person to give up all of their money or one person to move to Africa or one person to move to Cambridge, as it were, in my life, that everybody else needs to do the same thing. That's not true. Wisdom is a pretty universal thing. You can genuinely look at somebody else and say, I don't think that's wise for you to go out with this person or to go to this event, or to do this thing. 
but you really can't say to somebody else, God doesn't want you to take that step of faith. Or God demands that you take this step of faith. That really is between the Holy Spirit and the person who's being asked to take the step. What's the result of Paul's faith? Well, in 21 verse 30, they seized Paul and they dragged him out of the temple. He got imprisoned. He got beaten. He got insulted and hurt. But then in 28 verse 30, the very last line of the book of Acts, we are told that Paul lived in Rome two whole years and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Paul stays the course. He does what looks unwise on the surface because he knows God is calling him to it. He counts the cost. He bears the cost. And then he gets to be part of God bringing the gospel to Rome, the very thing that he had been wanting for years and years. I think that's a pretty cool thing, don't you? So then back to Raquel. How did I respond to her? I think you know, probably. I encouraged her, first, that she was wise in recognizing that this could be a dangerous situation. But that if God was really stirring up in her a sense that she needed to do this to grow her and to benefit the people she's going to see, then she should go. That she should prepare herself, get ready to bear some cost, but that it's an exciting thing to take that step of faith and to see God work through and in your life. I hope each of you might experience situations like that, big and small. Ones where you have the wisdom to know this is what's before me, and yet the faith to do it anyways. There is great blessing in doing that. Let's play. pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your ever-present faithfulness in our life, for the fact that you are guiding us, leading us by the hand. And Father, that you promise that you will bring about great things for those who trust in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, and are willing to lay down their life in service to him. I pray that each of us would be able to count the cost in little ways and big ways in our life to serve you and to help bless others so that they might come to know your Son, Jesus Christ, as well. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.